From PRX and NPR, I'm Al Letson, and you're listening to State of the Reunion. So, what do you do when you live in a place where things just don't work the way they're supposed to? Well, in Oakland, California, the answer is simple, but it's not easy. If you're in a neighborhood and the city's not going to do anything, then you got to do it for yourself. That means people have to learn to be there for each other. It's a matter of survival. We're all in the same boat, you know. We're all in need of services and have laid up and laid off our, our jobs, losing our homes and all of us. So we have to take, look, look out for each other and work together with each other because that's the only way we're going to make it. And sometimes it means taking justice into your own hands. You can't kill a story by killing a journalist. Don't try it. You'll regret it. Coming up on State of the Reunion, people doing for themselves what their city can't do in Oakland, California. But first this news. From PRX and NPR, you're listening to State of the Reunion. I'm Al Letson. And even though America is a relatively young nation, there are mythical places in this country, cities and towns where the history of what makes us American is woven not just into the land, but the people. Some of those places are grandiose and others, others are more humble. Places like where we are today, Oakland, California. Now, most people don't think of Oakland as mythic because, well, it's Oakland. It's a city that's known to have problems. Even today, there's some tension between the people who live in Oakland and the police department. But in the 70s, it was at a boiling point. It's difficult to deal with rebel rousers. Uh, first, uh, you have to civilize and tame them. Now, that's not some official from the city or the Oakland Police Department talking. Uh, they have no respect for law and order. They have no respect for the values of man. It's actually Huey P. Newton, leader of the Black Panther Party, talking about the police. The police were to withdraw from the community and the black community control its own uh, police institution as well as all the other institutions within our community. Uh, we feel that the law and order would exist. People tend to think of the Panthers as angry black men with guns, but their legacy is much more complex than that. Beyond their stance against the police, they also started their own schools, free breakfast programs, voter registration drives, even a health clinic in Oakland. They were creating their own institutions. Now, this kind of thing didn't begin or end with the Panthers. In fact, it's a part of the very fabric of this place. You see, in Oakland, the people, they take matters into their own hands. Even if you are living in the, the most hardened parts of Oakland, Everybody wants to see some sort of community built. People have a lot of pride in this city, and they really take a lot of ownership. The students came on the streets to protest, not just university students like these here, but college students, community college students, high school students, elementary students. Let's follow them and march with them all the way to the city hall in Oakland. So the question is, what's going on here? Well, every episode of State of the Reunion, we go to a different American city or town and look at what makes community. Who are the people that bring it together? What are the issues they face? And like most places we go, we learn that in order to understand Oakland, you got to go back. In the 1930s and 40s, the war effort made Oakland a boom town. Migrant families came from all over the country to work the port here. But when the war ended and work dried up, middle-class white families left Oakland, over 100,000 of them. Black families stayed, were confined to certain neighborhoods, down in what's called the flatlands of Oakland. 
actually Huey P. Newton and the people who joined the Black Panthers were the children of that generation. But by the 50s, the opportunities their parents had were long gone. Poverty and joblessness were bad in the flatlands. By the 1950s, the city started to essentially withdraw services from the communities. The school district started going broke. It was very clear that if you are a homeowner and uh, you're in a neighborhood and the city's not going to do anything, then you got to do it for yourself. That's Benjamin so Bowser, a, result, a sociology professor at Cal State East Bay. He says there was another factor too, a simple amendment to the Oakland City Charter that transferred power from the mayor to the city administrator, a non-elected official who is usually a businessman. The mayor of the city is, became primarily a ceremonial position, a, a bully pulpit. That meant that until a few years ago, when former Oakland mayor and current governor of California, Jerry Brown, finally changed the charter, the mayors elected by the people of Oakland really didn't have that much power. They couldn't put money into failing schools, couldn't respond to the alarming rate of poverty and violence. So in many cases, the people of Oakland filled the vacuum. Benjamin Bowser is writing a whole book about this. It's going to be looking at what people have done in response to lack of government. You know, the Republicans are talking about we need less and less government. Well, Oakland is an excellent example of of a city that operated from the grassroots with no government. So what does that look like? What does that look like? Well, if you come to Oakland, you'll see it, feel it everywhere. People are bound together, sometimes by necessity to keep the city running, and sometimes by tragedy. Our first story begins early on the morning of August 2nd, 2007, downtown Oakland near Alice and 14th Street. On that morning, a man was killed right here. So the van pulled up over here, and witnesses say they saw a man wearing a ski mask, just carrying a shotgun, get out, run across the street, approach a man, the man was standing right here. Bob Butler is a local radio reporter. We're standing on the sidewalk next to McDonald's in a parking lot full of U.S. Postal Service trucks. Shot him once with the shotgun, hit him in the stomach. Chauncey fell down. Chauncey was Chauncey Bailey. Somebody that Bob knew, a local news reporter, actually. The guy turned around and walked away, came back, shot him a second time in the head, and a third time in the right in the shoulder. Ran, ran back across the street, got in the van, and, and the van drove off. Chanti ended up falling right there. This was early in the morning? 7.20 in the morning. You can see Chanti was two blocks from work. Two blocks from work at the Oakland Post, a local black newspaper. The story of why he was killed and what happened afterwards is an Oakland story. It's complicated and goes back to the 1960s. And in order to understand it, we have to start by looking through the eyes of the people who cared maybe more than anyone outside of Chauncey Bailey's family that he'd been killed, other journalists. Martin Reynolds worked with Chauncey at the Oakland Tribune for over a decade. You know, he was the kind of guy who knew everyone, had a lot of tentacles out in the community, had a lot of connections. If you needed a, a contact for something, you could go to Chauncey and he'd like, oh, I know, yeah, he would have a number. Bob Butler says that Chauncey was known for listening to people, regular people, especially in the black community, and following up on stories they thought were important. And he wasn't afraid of a little controversy. Chauncey was one of those guys that would get in your face and every time you go to a news conference, he would ask the first question and he would demand an answer and he would 
he would keep asking you if you didn't answer the question, and if you didn't answer the question during the news conference, he would ask you afterwards. Like everyone else who knew Chauncey, Martin Reynolds was baffled when he heard about the murder. He got a call from a colleague at the Oakland Tribune. Pete was like, you know, we just heard Chauncey's killed. And I was like, what? What are you talking about? I figured, I figured the first thing I thought in my head was, who did he piss off? Journalists across the Bay Area were shocked, hungry for information. People started running through motives in their heads. Reynolds thought at first, well, maybe this was a crime of passion, or could it have been random, or something he was working on. Tom Peel is an investigative reporter at the Bay Area News Group. He started talking to his sources. One source called me up and said he heard two things. Barely owed money, owed money to a loan shark, which turned out quickly to be false, and he was working on a story about the Bays, which turned out to be true. The Bays were the Bay family. They were well-known in Oakland. They ran a business called Your Black Muslim Bakery. The bakery had been an institution in town for almost 40 years. Chauncey had crossed paths with the Bays years before. Bob Butler. See, Chauncey worked for this TV program called Soul Beat, which was um, kind of like the precursor to BET. So Chauncey became the news director, and he would do a news program. You know, at the same time, Soul Beat used to air the sermons of Dr. Yusuf Bey, the owner of Your Black Muslim Bakery. Praise you to Allah. All praise you to Allah. Understand the truth, and the truth will make us free. I think that the people that I get off the streets are the ones who want to burn up Oakland. That's right. Your Black Muslim Bakery had a main storefront out on San Pablo Avenue. And by the 70s, it was a fixture in the neighborhood. At this time, three shifts keep the bakery operating 24 hours a day. When all these millions of black people in Oakland come out to shop, I would have everything they need, cookies, cakes, cupcakes, uh, uh, all sizes. The bakery was known for giving jobs to needy people, ex-cons, people out of work in the black community. This is where I first came for my very first job when I came out of prison. You said they gave me their job down here as a mechanic, and from there, I went to other jobs and other things. Dr. Bay had hundreds, if not thousands, of spiritual followers. He even ran for mayor of Oakland once and got 5% of the vote. Martin Reynolds says the place meant a lot to people in Oakland. It was a symbol of, of black power, of, of, of black independence, of black entrepreneurship, all of those things. I mean, I had even gone there many a time buy their fish sandwiches and felt good about walking in there and seeing this black run business. It was a nice business and it, had, it was open, it was you know, well run. But for years, there had been signs that something darker was going on at the bakery. There were lawsuits, some bad press, and within a few days of his death, it came out that Chauncey Bailey had been working on a story about the financial trouble the bakery was having. They were in the middle of bankruptcy proceedings. Tom Peel says that other reporters started talking about picking up where Chauncey left off. So it began as this idea of, okay, Chauncey was going to write about the bakery. There was the bankruptcy case. Let's go see what we can find. Local reporters dug in immediately, trying to piece together what had happened. Their effort just kept getting bigger and bigger. Journalists came from all over the Bay Area, from TV, print, radio, journalism schools, everywhere. They called themselves the Chauncey Bailey Project. And suddenly, all these people who were used to competing with each other had to figure out a way to work together. I mean, even early on, we said, we've got to make sure that this doesn't happen again because every one of us is vulnerable. 
if a reporter can't be taken out for a story he or she is writing, then we're all in danger. It didn't matter what their regular beat was, almost everyone who heard about Chauncey felt like they had to do something, to send a message. Mary Fricker was an investigative reporter who lived two hours north of Oakland on the coast. She was supposed to be retired, but she couldn't keep herself away. You can't kill a story by killing a journalist. That's our message. Don't try it. You'll regret it. The Chauncey Bailey Project started big. Almost every news outlet in the Bay Area was a part of it. The scope of their collaboration was unprecedented. And so was what they uncovered. Martin Reynolds. And it was just shocking, you know, something that you would expect in Russia, in the Philippines, uh, Mexico, but certainly not something that you would expect on the streets of Oakland. Their reporting would lead from Your Black Muslim Bakery to deep inside the Oakland Police Department and change the city of Oakland. We'll find out how ahead on State of the Reunion. If you want to hear and see more of State of the Reunion, you can follow us on Twitter at twitter.com backslash so true. That's S-O-T-R-U. We're on Facebook, iTunes, and of course, stateoftheReunion.com. Welcome back to State of the Reunion. I'm Al Letson, and today we're in Oakland, California. Chauncey Bailey was a local reporter who was murdered on the streets of Oakland, and a whole community of journalists, dozens of them from many outlets, came together in the weeks afterwards to respond to his death. Their first step was to keep reporting on the story that Chauncey had been working on. It was a small story, really, about a local business named Your Black Muslim Bakery that had declared bankruptcy. It turns out that that story was just the tip of the iceberg. Mary Fricker was a part of the team. Chauncey was writing about the bakery. We're going to write about the bakery. So we wrote it in every detail that we could. Tom Peel, an investigative reporter, started with what he does best, digging up documents. The way we chose to do it was look to see what we could find in lawsuits and other public records about questionable activities among the members. And you know, we found rat's nest after rat's nest of that kind of stuff. And that is how one story became dozens of stories. Real estate fraud, welfare fraud, corruption, unpaid taxes. Then came something much more sinister. There were several women who a few years earlier had sued the bakery and the head of the bakery for abusing them when they were minors. After the team rounded up the court and police records for that lawsuit and combed through the original news coverage, they went to Mary, who'd been an investigative journalist. She'd know how to put all the pieces together. Astonishing stuff. These women were claiming that as children, the head of this bakery had repeatedly had sex with them. So I just plowed through. It was a stack of transcripts like this. Um, stayed up all night. I'd go back to that room. You know the way it is when you're just consumed. I just couldn't believe it. Mary wrote about the abuse of girls and women at the bakery. Meanwhile, Bob started looking into the bakery's origins at a mosque down in Santa Barbara. I went down there 
to find out, you know, to get some documents, phone listings, whatever, that I could get. You know, talking to the lady in the library, and she said, oh yeah, I remember that bakery at Moscow. They had some trouble there. I said, trouble? What kind of trouble? Well, they have the double murder. My mouth just dropped. What do you mean double murder? Two people affiliated with the mosque have been shot and killed in Santa Barbara in 1968. So I'm looking, so wait a minute, 40 years before the bakery is involved in another, in murders? Unsolved murders? Wait a minute, this is too much of a coincidence. There were other unsolved murders too. And as the reporters were digging into the history of the bakery, the Oakland police were conducting the investigation of Chauncey Bailey's murder. They had indicted a member of the bakery named Devondre Bassard, who'd confessed a day after the crime. By then we had suspicions because the police had said very early on that more people were involved. But yet they didn't charge anybody. You know, they just, they didn't charge anybody. And it was just kind of left hanging. But we began looking at the person who had admitted to killing Chauncey, uh, Devondre Broussard. And there were a lot of things that didn't add up. For instance, he talked about how he had driven to the crime scene by himself. But everybody I talked to said the kid didn't drive. Broussard was 19 at the time of the killing, and it seemed clear to Tom, Bob, and Mary that even if he had fired the gun, he hadn't acted alone. At the time Chauncey was killed, the bakery was run by Yusef Bey IV, one of Dr. Bey's sons. The reporters on the project called him Fourth for short. He'd become the leader of the bakery when he was just 19 years old after Dr. Bay had died. The bakery was like, I don't want to call it a cult, but it was, it was a closed organization. And Fourth was telling the police that this guy did this on his own. I didn't have him do this. Well, knowing how the black Muslims operate, not much goes on without the minister knowing about it. In 2008, almost a year after the murder, someone in the police department leaked a video to reporters. The police had left Forth alone in an interrogation room talking with some buddies a few days after Chauncey's murder. Forth had no idea that the police were recording it. It was hard to hear what they were saying because they were whispering in some cases, plus they had the, the chains, you know, they were shackled, so those chains are rattling and... At one point, the guy is saying, you know, in 94, he was talking about a gun, and we didn't know what gun. 94? So he was only like six years old or seven, eight years old. What's he talking about? We kept slowing it down, and we took us maybe a hundred times listening to it to find out that we were hearing it wrong. We had a jaw-dropping moment. He didn't say the gun from 94. He said the gun from the night before. The gun that was used was in my closet. The murder weapon. He's talking about the day that Chauncey was killed. The shotgun was in his closet. And it's like, holy smokes, he's talking about Chauncey. And he, he's saying, you know, he said, pow, pow. Mimic what happened to Chauncey when he was killed. Not only was Forth now tied to the murder, but another part of the tape implied that there were two people in the van that morning. We started asking ourselves, if we can figure this out, why haven't the police who are trained to do this, who have more resources at their disposal than we do, why haven't they figured this out? So Tom and the team started pressing the police department for answers. But from the beginning, it was almost impossible to get the police to talk to them. And there seemed to be a mindset within the Oakland Police Department of 
who are you guys? This isn't the way that we interact with the media. There is this holier than thou, how dare you ask us that question? How dare you imply things? And the more the reporters tried, the more the police resisted. And they were basically like, stop emailing us. We are never going to talk to you ever, 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 ever. We can't accept that. They said, we're always going to say no. Well, we're always going to ask and make you say no. You're going to have to say no every time we do a story. We asked for an interview, too, and the Oakland Police Department declined to comment for the story. But the reporting by the Chauncey Bailey Project eventually led to a state investigation. Oakland Mayor Ron Dellum says he's concerned about the integrity of the Oakland police investigation into the killing of journalist Chauncey Bailey. Now the mayor says he wants outside investigators to look at the case. The lead detective on the case was suspended. He's now suing the police department, saying they hung him out to dry. And the chief of police resigned. Chief Tucker will step down at the end of next month, and his resignation comes as Oakland's police department is facing serious criticism on several fronts. For Tom, Bob, and Mary, the big moment was when the DA's office indicted Yousef Bay IV and another member of the bakery as co-defendants in the murder of Chauncey Bailey and two other murders in 2007. The trial is underway in Oakland now and is likely to drag on through the summer. Your Black Muslim Bakery shut its doors four years ago. Martin Reynolds, editor of the Oakland Tribune, says the loss is bitter, especially because Oakland is known for fostering black journalism. So you basically had your own looking into your own in a way, right? You had a black organization, black newspaper looking into it. And you didn't like it, so you took him out. It's disappointing because Chauncey himself believed in the bakery, too. He just didn't believe that that should protect them from the press. Bob Butler. Chauncey was a big supporter of black, your Black Muslim Bakery. He used to go in there and buy stuff. He, when they had a campaign to spend money in the black community, Chauncey covered the story. He was a big supporter of the organization. Most of the reporters on the Chauncey Bailey Project have gone back to their beats. And while some of the old rivalries have crept back in, Martin Reynolds says the project changed the way many of them do their jobs. They now know and trust each other in a way they didn't before, and those connections let's breathe new life into local journalism in the Bay Area. And maybe the most ironic part of all of this is that Chauncey Bailey, on his own, could have never had this kind of effect. He was not an investigative reporter. His article about the bakery going bankrupt in the Oakland Post Few people would have seen it. It probably would have quickly disappeared into yesterday's news. You know, Chauncey's probably sort of snickering about this whole thing. Like, I can't believe all these people are, you know, falling all over themselves and doing stories about me and all that. It's, it, you know, he would find it amusing, I think. Um, you can even tell a person about that laugh they have. And he had a good little mischievous snicker. And I think he'd be snickering at this. You can find links to all the reporting from the Chauncey Bailey Project at our website, stateoftheReunion.com. In every episode, we ask our listeners to pen a letter to the city where they live. I happen to have a lot of friends in Oakland, and this letter comes from one of them. You might know him as host of an excellent NPR PRX radio program, Snap Judgment. Ladies and gentlemen, I give you Mr. Glenn Washington. Dear Oakland, you know I love you. You know this. I love you because you're beautiful, the best of America. Black, Asian, gay, straight, whatever, whatever. You don't care, Oakland. 
and I love you for that. But sometimes, when I look you in the eye, I'm scared, Oakland. See, I wonder if I can trust you if this is the way you're gonna treat our kids. Almost half our youngsters dropping out of school. What? I know where they are, Oakland. Why don't you? Check in front of the liquor stores, walking down the street to no job. Check the jails. Genocide haunts my doorstep and where is the outrage, Oakland? What is the plan, Oakland? What is gonna happen to us, Oakland? I still hear that kid screaming on International Boulevard, don't shoot, don't shoot, don't shoot, don't shoot, Oakland. Stop me. I know I get angry sometimes because you have shown me love. Remember Parkway Theater? Weekend barbecues, secret shoreline, church choirs, that salty, bibimbap, crunchy taste in the middle of the day topped off with sweet potato pie, where else? Would you taste so good? As soon as I despair, as soon as I fear, politicians and business leaders can't come up with the big plan. Regular people jump in with the real plan. This one, teaching kids to build their own bikes. You sniff over there, smell urban gardens blossoming from sandlots. I see my own neighbors repairing the street in front of our house. Leaderless leadership, doing what they can on their own because nobody's going to do it for them. Maybe this is your plan. Well, all right, then I need you to stop worrying about big buildings downtown and worry about the schools across town because that's going to be the real engine for our success, Oakland. Or the real albatross for our failure, Oakland. I know you have a big heart. I have run from places where communities did not care about each other, and that is not you. You care. So listen to me. Listen. Everything you need already lives right here. Everything. There's so much love for you right here, Oakland. Right here. Just make sure that we're all pulling in the same direction. Sincerely yours. Glenn Washington. <laughs> okay, now, now I know this is public radio, but come on, when, when you hear that song, you want to move, don't you? Come on, just a little. Now, when I hear Sly and the Family Stone, I always want to move. This is a classic, but it isn't even my favorite song from them. It's just funky. And Sly's funk came out of the Bay Area, and it wasn't just Sly. You can't touch this. You can't touch this. MC Hammer was from Oakland, and so was one of my all-time favorites. That's Digital Underground. Both them and Hammer, at this point, are old school. Uh, I am getting old. But back then, their sound was new and exciting. The Oakland sound is always changing, sometimes spinning off in its own orbit, putting out stuff that doesn't quite hit the rest of the country, like hyphy. Today, Oakland's hip-hop scene is in the middle of a renaissance. Downtown Oakland nightclubs are welcoming hip-hop artists for the first time in almost a decade. For local MC Doodat, the evolution of hip-hop is a part of something bigger. It's not just hip-hop, but it's art. 
you know, because there's photographers, there's painters, you know what I'm saying? Everybody is, we're trying to reach new heights. Who has the dopest expression? Who's really being creative right now? Who is, who's working? You know what I mean? Who's really trying to produce, you know? And it's, it's beautiful to see. It's dope. All of these artists are coming together in a way that might not have happened before, especially in the world of hip-hop, where there's always been this culture of turf war since its inception. There's this crabs in a barrel mentality of artists fighting for that little bit of shine. You know, there's just these petty beefs. And from a national perspective, it's hilarious that artists that nobody knows about are beefing with each other. That's Luke Brecky Meisner, a.k.a. Cool Hand Luke. He's a hip-hop blogger who runs something called the Get Live Sessions. Get Live is a web broadcast that puts Bay Area hip-hop artists in the studio with a live band. Artists come together, collaborate, and perform, drawing inspiration from their city. There is a rich musical heritage here that's kind of slept on, you know what I mean? The politics of the Panthers, CPM, but also the street culture. That's Dudat talking at a Get Live session. There's, you know, jazz, there's blues, there's all kind of other different things. Cool Hand Luke says that one of the goals of the Get Live sessions is to convince rappers to write about their day-to-day instead of rhyming about the life they wish they had. We get spoiled sort of by these definitions of success that are, you know, I'm around the globe on yachts and this, that, and the third, which you'll hear like, you know, the gutterest rapper from East Oakland talking about and you're like, I'm pretty sure that's not the case, you know? But I don't care. I would rather hear about, I want to hear about you taking a bus. I want to hear about your nine to five and then the fact that you're using that money to fuel your passion. Like, that's the stuff that I can connect with. To Luke, a perfect example of that connection is Dudat's latest project, Oakland in Blue. The whole album is built around Duke Ellington samples. You know, the reason it's Oakland and Blue is because I'm offering a different perspective. Uh, You know what I'm saying? A a different tint, if you will, on my city. Can you, like, talk about some of the songs on there and kind of take me to something that, like, uh, specifically, like, speaks to your your neighborhood? Where I grew up, I grew up, um, you know, deep east Oakland, um, off of 82nd, kind of like, you know, kind of up the hill, so a little bit removed from from the flats. We're going to slow it down and smooth it out. For the West Coast, and driving from one end of Oakland to the other end of Oakland, um, you see so many different, like shrines, and you know just where people have passed, and there's candles, and there's you know balloons and all that stuff. I love my city, tragically pretty. I got a feeling your block's identical. So the mood in every hood is indigo, but I see something seminal in each individual. We addicted to breathing chemicals, weed and minerals. These traditions breathe more criminals. Making me cynical. What anyone can do though, now I do know why my eyes play the blue notes on my phone. These guys wouldn't mind making it big on the national stage, but what's really important to guys like Dad and Luke is telling the story of their city from the inside, making hip-hop that's meant for Oakland. I feel like Oakland's biggest export is talent. The opportunities are here, but also the struggle that's that's just organic here that 
it makes people strong and it makes these amazing artists and people in all fields, but it's not enough of a destination to keep people and sustain them. And so I think, yeah, that's the next phase. Like, that's the next challenge. How does Oakland create itself to be deserving to keep all the talent it's able to produce? And that, to me, is is really what's going to take Oakland to the next level. Mean thing, long as it's green in your jeans and your kicks clean, I dream, Coming up, Oakland stops and takes a deep breath before the sun rises. And a high school where prom is a very foreign idea. That's next on State of the Reunion. Support for State of the Reunion comes from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting and PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, a growing network of listeners, producers, and stations collaborating to make public radio more public. PRX.org. You're listening to State of the Reunion. I'm Al Ledson, and today we're in Oakland, California. Now, if you get up early here... Actually, the action starts here uh, before dawn. Really early? Uh, Usually by 5.30, people are leaving already. You'll see something beautiful. There's blacks here, there's whites here doing what we do. Hundreds of people moving slowly in the pre-dawn light. This group here is our largest group. This is the Qigong group. The Qigong master is 90 years old. And he still does jumping jacks. <laughs> Ed and Evelyn Liu are a Chinese-American couple in their 70s. They're part of this group. Hundreds of people who come every morning to Madison Square Park in Oakland's Chinatown. They do Tai Chi, Qigong, dance, whatever they feel like. Ed and Evelyn found this place because they just happened to be driving by. We heard this. He. She inhale. Foo exhale. And we said, what are they doing? And we stopped and looked and we never turned back. <laughs> that was 14 years ago. Back then, Ed and Evelyn didn't know they'd end up having to fight for this community. See, all these people actually used to practice at the Bart Plaza across the street. They liked the shelter from the sun and rain, but then a few years ago, Bart, that's the public transportation system here, decided to renovate the plaza, and they told everyone they'd have to find somewhere else to go. The only nearby option was Madison Square Park. A city park, I mean, that sounds good, right? But... At that time, this park was, uh, was in really bad shape. It was uh, a homeless park. The city had pretty much abandoned it. It was a mess. Ed and Evelyn quickly realized that if the group was going to survive, they'd have to get involved. Many of the folks cannot speak uh, English. So I said, well, maybe we should, should step forward and try to help them. Determination was not a problem. Older Chinese immigrants who lived nearby were ready to help, like Miss Chung. She treats this place like it's her front yard. Oh, she says that you know now that she's getting older, it's hard to keep that keep up the the work of of, of, of cleaning this place. She's 85, so yeah. Miss Chung comes every morning, sweeping up and cleaning out clogged drains. Roy Chan, who works nearby at the Oakland Asian Cultural Center, translated for us. So she basically took things in their own hands. She's our little angel. (laughs) Even with people like Miss Chung helping, the park needed a major renovation. And that, of course, would cost money. So Ed and Evelyn asked for donations and raised more than $30,000. 
They worked with the city council and scrounged up the rest, almost a quarter of a million altogether. And a few years later, here we are. The group is going strong in its own free-spirited way. And Roy Chan hopes the city will recognize that this is a kind of urban planning miracle happening all on its own. If you look around Oakland, rarely do you see a public space being used and a community forming, you know, over years together. And, and, and right, I mean, I've lived, right. I grew up in Oakland and this is kind of a phenomenon to me. <laughs> Ed and Evelyn Liu just can't imagine where they'd be without this place. Tai Chi, uh, uh, in a way, it's freed me quite a bit. Uh, I, I didn't care to stand in front of people to talk and make a speech and all that kind of stuff. He was a shy flower before Tai Chi. <laughs> It's almost tangible in Oakland, the feeling that people are changing their city, and in return, the city is changing its people. It's not quick or an easy process, but all around town, it's happening in some surprising ways. Like this guy. It's nice and raining. And we're out here getting wet, you know, in the name of serving the community. You know, as you see, no one's tripping off of getting wet. Derek Eddings is helping to feed his hungry neighbors here in Sobrani Park, in the parking lot of a church in deep East Oakland, one of the poorest parts of the city. They're dropping off the food, and we're looking through it, seeing what we got, and getting ready to set it up so we can start giving it away. But there's a twist. Zoom out, and what he's doing is part of a bigger plan engineered by the Alameda County Public Health Department. Derek is not just helping with the food pantry, he's banking hours in something called the Sobrani Park Time Bank. The Time Bank started with this guy named Arnold Perkins. He's retired now, but he used to be the director of the Alameda County Public Health Department. And the idea is simple. I bake bread, you do painting. When you join the Time Bank, you put in hours helping people out with whatever skills you have. Derek, the guy under the umbrella, says that he's banked a couple hundred hours already. And then someone else does auto repair and someone else does babysitting. If I put in two hours of babysitting, I can pull two hours out, asking for anything I need from the other members. There's no money involved, just favors, neighbor to neighbor. So that we move away from, I'm in this by myself, I'm poor and I'm this, in this by myself, as opposed to, I have a community as a resource that I can use. And this is part of what the public health department did. So when I heard about the time bank, I wondered, why exactly does the public health department run this program? I mean, what's the connection to health? Well, it's, it's life expectancy. So... Oakland has a flatland area and a hill area. The people who have means live in the hill area. And if you're born up in those wealthier Oakland hills, you have a lifespan that is 11 years longer than if you lived in an impoverished community. Sobrani Park is in the flatlands where people die younger. When Arnold Perkins heard that statistic, he thought, wow, you know, if the public health department doesn't do something to close the gap, we're not doing our job. And I knew that we couldn't treat our way out of this, but we can prevent it from happening. Perkins wanted to see the next generation of kids in Sobrani Park grow up to live just as long as the kids in the Oakland Hills. But how? There's so many reasons why people in the flatlands die earlier. Less access to healthy food, the general stress of poverty, more pollution, more violence, and other things. So the neighborhood would have to change from the inside. 
is involved with the entire community in every aspect of what goes on here. That's what time banking is all about. Getting everybody to know each other so that we can take care of each other. That's Phoebe Richardson. She's a coordinator at the Time Bank, and she's lived in Sabrini Park for almost 50 years. So this is uh, the new concept, which is called time banking. But years ago, it was just, think, this is what you did for your neighbor. So. But connecting people, building trust between neighbors, turned out to be a challenge here in Sabrani Park. At one time, it was almost 100% black. Now it's about 60% black, 40% Hispanic. You know, there's been... Um, a lot of transitions. People have lost their homes and have moved out. People are moving out and in. So it's not as cohesive as it was before. Phoebe says that some of the African-Americans here feel like they've lost something with so many new Hispanic people moving in. And for Ramona Preciado, the Spanish language coordinator for the Time Bank, crime is a concern. Nosotros particularmente hemos sido víctimas de robo. Uh, theft. They broke into our home. Just last week, they assaulted my, my son here at the, at the corner store. They took his uh, wallet. Uh, it was African-American folks that was doing that. It's hard to overcome this kind of fear and the stereotypes that go along with it. But in the past few years, Sobrani Park has been making progress. Blacks and Hispanics have helped each other out through the time bank. Ramona and Phoebe have learned how to communicate more and that's a start. Uh, it's a little difficult, but we try. Me with my little bit of English and her with her patience, we try. Yeah. Thank you, Ramona. Yeah, I know. Black and Hispanic people in Sobrani Park have had joint Christmas celebrations, fashion shows, cooking contests, all efforts in community building supported by the Public Health Department. And people in Sobrani Park are starting to communicate well enough to realize that they actually want the same thing a healthy community. The ultimate goal is to build power in Sobrani Park to the point where the community can actually demand things from the Public Health Department and the City Council and the Mayor, like more attention on crime and money to renovate their park so people can exercise and feel safe sending their kids outside to play. And so that's a huge leap from knowing that you have a mayor someplace out there and being able to call the mayor's office and say, we as a community want to come and see you because you work for us. So I kind of lived in Oakland on Webster Street for a short period of time over a decade ago. And at the end of the block was this little school all the neighborhood kids went to, pretty typical. But since that time, that school has changed dramatically. This is a gym class taught by Irene Kim. So I just started the soccer unit with them. So I wanted to make sure that they know what the word opponent is and defensive and offensive. Four years ago, that little school became Oakland International High School. And instead of just the neighborhood, these kids come from more than two dozen countries. They're refugees or very recent immigrants. They have one thing in common. They're all here to learn English. Victor Mercado, a sophomore with braces and a big smile, came to Oakland from Mexico three years ago. I have a lot of friends from all over the world. They speak like more than 30 languages. And I have also been learning a little bit of their languages and culture. And that's, that's what's awesome about it. Jyoti Gram is a Bhutanese girl who grew up in a refugee camp in Nepal. She's only been in the U.S. for one year. 
but it's kind of hard because of the language barrier and even though we know English, we have got different accents, so it's kind of hard to communicate. In the hallways of the school, there's this teenage energy you feel in any high school. But the kids themselves are sort of between worlds. Sure, students here are learning English, but they're also learning what it means to be a teenager in America, to be in high school. Things like cheerleaders, school mascots, candy grams on Valentine's Day. Oh, and the big one, prom. Since we have our first senior class, um, we're trying to kind of show the movie clips and, and just examples of what prom would be like and tell them it's a really good time and that they should take part in it. Usually, traditionally, prom is only for seniors, sometimes juniors, but most high schools, are it's meant for seniors. They're special dance. This is the school's leadership club, also a brand new idea for these kids, where they're trying to decide whether or not the students here are ready for their first prom. Okay, so you guys, as you guys all know, I was going around asking people how many people will come to prom and we end up only with 35 people. That's Neela, a student from Uzbekistan. So what we came up with is that we probably have to make it in school during daytime, I guess, because a lot of people won't come in night. Because most of the students here aren't allowed out at night. We're still catching up with the um, American culture. Right now, we decided that uh, we were going to do it our way because like, um, we're still start- starting and um, we're just going to learn from, our, from what we do on our own. These kids are used to figuring out things on their own. They have to. In my family, uh, I think I might be the only person who speaks English fluently. Because nobody else in your family speaks English, do you end up having to be a translator a lot at home? I do, a lot. When my, my parents have to, you know, they get these forms, applications, they're like, tell me what, what it says here, like, I don't understand this. Victor's mom takes care of his four siblings. His dad is a welder who came to the U.S. years before the rest of the family. Yo me siento feliz. Porque yo sé que ya con el idioma él puede tener mucha más oportunidad de la que yo tengo. He said that you know he feels happy for us because he knows that like we know English, so like our our uh, like destiny is different than his. Like we will get more adapted to to the U.S. system. But as Victor adapts to life in Oakland. It seems there's more and more to worry about. He said that uh, he's personally concerned about us because I recently got uh, robbed by, by a person and uh, he was very concerned about me. Victor's dad started crying and had to leave the room. Victor says he's over the fact that he got mugged. But a few months ago, his dad got mugged too in a stairwell right outside their apartment. And now, every time his parents leave the house, he worries about what might happen to them. If someone uh, attacks them or robs them, they will they will not know what to say or they will not um, know how to call call for help. Living in Oakland has been tougher on Victor and his family than any of them expected. By necessity, Victor is growing up fast and keeping his feet in two worlds. I think being an American, um, it's, it's hard. Like, 
it's a lot of struggle because, you know, back in Mexico, I, I felt like um, I was lacking a lot of things like education. That was why I came here. But I think that if I become an American, I, I will not be able to forget like where, where I'm from. Like none of us will, because that's the place that where we were made and where we had those ex- experiences that shaped us. In the meantime, Victor is helping plan the first prom at Oakland International, where kids have decided that the theme will be Bright Lights, Big City. At the top of this hour, I called Oakland Mythic. You know, there's probably some people who heard that and thought, what? Mythic? Oakland? Now, I I know, I know it's not the type of place where we tend to assign national importance, like Gettysburg or or Mount Rushmore. But that's part of what makes it mythic. Right here, this little city encompasses the idea that is America. From freedom of the press to a high school for newly made Americans to self-determination, people making their own destiny and much, much more. And yeah, a lot of Oakland isn't pretty, but neither is democracy. It may not be the best reflecting glass for the America we want, but it is definitely representative of the America we have. And maybe the most perfect thing in all that imperfection is the unconditional love the people here seem to have for the place that they call home. I hella love Oakland. (laughs) I love, 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 love Oakland. This is an incredible place. Man, it is an incredible place. I love the weather. You know, uh, we complain about a little bit of rain, but weather-wise, they say that this is the best weather in the world. It's a very small town, and a lot of people are, they see the potential for what Oakland can be. You know, you get that tightness, um, you've got that, the camaraderie, we're all in the same boat. And I've been to other places, and it's here is simple, it's good, you know. I I love this town because it's got edge, uh, it's got class. It's got problems, it's got issues, right, like any one of us do, um, and it has promise. Oakland, the self-made city, was produced by Laura Starcheski with help from senior editor Taki Telenitis. The rest of the So True staff is researcher Marietta Sinotis, business manager Bree Burge, director of photography Patrick Berry, producers Tina Antolini, Brenton Crozier, and director of development Stacey Cobb, and Ian D'Souza is the kingpin of cunning. Special thank yous to Emma Poland, Paul Richardson, Brian Warwick, Ian David, Herman Martinez, Bhavna Shamasunder, and the Get Live crew. Remember, you can see more of Oakland and the other places we've gone at stateoftheReunion.com. So True is distributed by PRX and NPR with major funding provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. You can follow us on Twitter at twitter.com backslash so true. I'm Al Letson, and remember, things fall apart. It's our job, all of us, to bring them back together. I'm a little girl in Oakland, something like i never, never seen before. Support for NPR comes from NPR member stations and from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. 
committed to helping Americans lead healthier lives and get the care they need on the web at rwjf.org. MetLife Foundation, committed to promoting healthy families and good nutrition, on the web at metlife.org. And the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. This is NPR.